Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. For three days in November of 1965, American soldiers found themselves surrounded by an unseen enemy in the jungles of Southeast Asia. In what would become the first battle of the Vietnam War, U.S. troops squared off with the People's Army of Vietnam in the Yaw Drang Valley. Badly outnumbered and undersupplied, the American troops fought to defend a tiny clearing in a dense rainforest non-stop for over 50 hours. Though the communist forces were ultimately pushed back by the awesome air power of the United States, the North Vietnamese gained valuable intelligence on how to wage war against the enemy superpower. For U.S. citizens watching at home and abroad, the Battle of the Yadrang Valley sent a clear message that the Vietnam War was far from over and was truly just beginning. On this episode, we discuss the Battle of the Yadrang Valley. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic battles in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events. You can visit our Facebook page. It's growing every day. Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web. Wartimepodcast.com. Moving forward here in Season 5, I've been having a great time. I am amazed, amazed, at how many people have reached out to me via social media, via email, to make show recommendations or just to talk a little shop. Make no mistake here. And I want to be honest about this and very straightforward. I'm not talking to you thinking I'm uh, some kind of celebrity. Uh, This is far from it, if this is what celebrity looks like. But I'm a person who loves to discuss history, who loves to talk about history. And obviously you are too. I've gotten Facebook messages. I've gotten emails. I've got like 10 different conversations going right now with listeners uh, about different historical topics and political topics for that matter. Uh, I'm, I'm a real student of the game. I love the game. And even though I don't know you, if you email me, please do because we know we have one thing in common and it's that we love these subjects. So please reach out to me. I promise you I will respond. Uh, There's never enough good historical and political chat. So uh, it's been great. But one of the other great things that's happened for us is that I've gotten a lot of show requests. And that's good. For the next few weeks, we're doing all requests. uh, Because a lot of the times, you know, I pick what I think is interesting or compelling. But I do care what you think because you're listening. So um, we had a request come from James from Texas. James made it very clear in his email. He's a proud Texan. Uh, He said the obvious choice was the Alamo, which I certainly understand. But James went outside of his comfort zone, uh, and he mentioned a very interesting and compelling battle. One that I have some experience with uh, in my historical training, and one I never really considered for the show. And it was the Battle of the Yadrang River Valley 
in the Vietnam War. And when James emailed me, thank you, James, for that, by the way. Um, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, my experience with Texas, I have to admit, comes from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But at any rate, um, this is a really great episode. I mean, it really is for a lot of reasons. And one of the biggest ones is that, you know, the Vietnam War doesn't get a lot of the academic attention, I think, that it should. It doesn't get a lot of the uh, individualized battlefield attention that I think it should. Because for a lot of Americans, especially, I think Vietnam is viewed as uh, an alternative war or a war that wasn't quite a real war, uh, like World War II or World War I. Um, you didn't see ticker tape parades when veterans from the Vietnam War came home. And, and those are issues that really bother me. And again, as time passes, going now 50 years beyond um, uh, the Vietnam War, I think that should change. So I want to do an episode on what I think is one of the most um, uh, just awe-inspiring battles of the conflict. But I also struggle with how to lead into that, because the beginning of the Vietnam War is deeply confusing. And the only way to really do it, I think, would be a full season on the Vietnam War, but we're going to try and make it very simple. Um, here in the first part of this episode today. So James, thanks a lot. Again, if you have recommendations, get them in. But the Vietnam War is in a lot of ways all about the end of World War II. Think about that. Before World War II, what they called French Indochina, today Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, were French colonies. Those countries as we know them, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, did not exist. And when World War II breaks out, the Japanese, with their ever-expanding ideology, invade the area. Now, they leave the French government in nominal control because they seem to be okay with the Japanese occupation. But the people of Vietnam certainly aren't. And out of that, you'll see this very real cry for self-determinism uh, and sense of a, a need for democracy, at least in some parts. Now, again, we can make a whole season about the causes of the Vietnam War, but it all comes down to the aftermath of World War II. In World War II, you have two very massive empires take over large amounts of territory, Germany in Europe, Japan in Asia, and those two superpowers are gone. So you have a world that is effectively a blank canvas. That's very deterministic and, and generalizing, but that's what it is. And we know as historians of empire... Again, this is where uh, I make my bread and butter, that that sort of power vacuum is going to be filled. Well, filled by who? Well, there's two different views of the world at the time. One is the uh, American and Western European view of democracy and capitalism. And the other is the uh, Soviet and Chinese view of communism. And these are not just economic systems. These are not just styles of governance. These are worldviews, and these two new empires, the American and the Soviet, are going to have a race for the next 50 years to determine which worldview will win out. That's the Cold War in a nutshell. But Vietnam, by 1954, becomes the new battleground of this very struggle. And we should think about that. By the time you get to the year 1954... Vietnam is finding itself fully embroiled in this struggle. I mean, in a microcosm, writ small. 
communists in the north under the command of a man named Ho Chi Minh, at least that's the name he assumes, are doing battle with capitalist pro-Western forces in the south. In 1954, the civil war that embroiled Vietnam was settled with something called the Geneva Accords, which basically said that there would be a permanent division in the country at the 17th parallel. China and the Soviet Union will be very influential in the North, communist capital city being Hanoi, Britain and the United States and France to a lesser degree, even though it's their colonial holding, will be very influential in the South. And this is where we get to by the 1950s, Civil War. The communists in the North continuously attempt to infiltrate the South because they believe that the nature of Vietnamese society uh, would benefit from communism more so than any other worldview. And they also view American and British intervention, Western intervention, uh, as an evil in this world. Ho Chi Minh regularly reads from the Declaration of Independence uh, to justify his reasoning. He believes his form of government is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, the way that politically, on the ground, communism is infiltrating the South is through a pathway through Cambodia, uh, going literally a pathway through the, through the jungles, uh, moving south, called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That's what that's what historians refer to it as. Uh, and through this, North Vietnam will cycle men and weapons and money to a group of insurgent hidden rebels within southern Vietnamese society in and near the capital of Saigon that become known as the Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong effectively operate as an arm of North Vietnam to wreak havoc through violence and terrorism, striking military positions and melting back into the backdrop uh, for the next several years. America has a policy on this sort of thing. And it's a policy that Dwight Eisenhower, the president, uh, will call the domino theory. Uh, that is to say, if communism takes hold in one country, no matter where it is, other countries will subsequently fall like dominoes. All you have to do is touch one. Uh, and before you know it, the world is communist. So our official policy in the United States in the 1950s and early 1960s is to stop communism at all costs, anywhere that it emerges. Um, if that means military intervention, even though our presidents don't like to say that, clearly so be it. Not popular amongst most of the American people, but popular enough that it wouldn't hurt you politically to take that stance. For that reason, troops had already been submitted to Korea in the 1950s. And a lot of people didn't know how to view that war, because many of them, especially the World War II generation, saw it as uh, a continuation or the next step in defending what was won in World War II. But by the time you get to the 1960s, you have a whole new generation of fighters. And people are beginning to sour on the notion of warfare abroad. I mean, what is Vietnam to the average American? It's an endless mix of rainforest, jungle, rivers, poisonous snakes and spiders within agricultural, seemingly uh, backwards community living there. That's how most Westerners viewed it. But this is the new battleground of communism. And Americans, by the time you get to 1962 and 1963, are beginning to realize there's a very good chance 
that we are headed there next. So when we talk about we, uh, in this case, the Americans, what they're doing in Vietnam, one thing should be clear by the time you get to 1964 is that Americans in some way, shape, and form, whether they be military advisors or diplomats or even the president, believe it or not, to that point, had been in Vietnam for about 10 years. Uh, they've been there secretly. They've been there as proxy uh, leaders. They've been there training the Army of South Vietnam, the ARVN, call them Arvin from now on, uh, how to train and fight communists. And this was a nasty war. This was not a war on the battlefield. This was a war, again, of sneak attacks, of terrorist attacks, of seemingly dirty tricks that, as powerful as America was, far and away, with the exception of the Soviets, the most powerful nation on the planet, didn't have a lot of experience with. As it turns out, in today's world, 2016, the lessons we learned of Vietnam are going to be critical for fighting the war on terror. But the tactics that the Americans possessed were enough to help the South Vietnamese um, gain some traction and hopefully defeat their communist enemy. Problem is, it wasn't going that way. And until August of 1964, that was sort of where the Americans stood. Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, and now Lyndon Johnson, uh, three presidents in a row, all dealing with the same problem, had basically, basically the same foreign policy. Uh, which was this domino theory, stop communism wherever it occurs. By the way, as an aside, I think when historians look at George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and whoever is the next president, which again, in about a year, if you're listening, will sound silly, um, we'll have virtually the same foreign policy as well. So that kind of continuity is not unheard of in American history, certainly not in the early 60s. But all that changes our role in the region on August 4th, 1964. Because again, there have been a U.S. military presence for some time. The North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong very rarely have engaged the Americans in any way. They knew it was a civil war. They knew that didn't necessarily benefit them yet, as we'll see. So Americans had a very observational role. Again, that happens until August 4th, 1964. Uh, the USS Maddox, large ship, is in a gulf off the coast of Vietnam called the Gulf of Tonkin. And it comes under attack from three North Vietnamese torpedo boats. The next day, when America is now on guard, another ship is attacked. This one's a little more sketchy. This one we're not sure of. The first day, August 4th, there certainly was an attack. The next day, I think what pushes American policymakers over the edge is still doubted today. Uh, some say it was confusion. Some say it was friendly fire. We'll never know. But whatever the case, that small engagement in the Gulf of Tonkin in August of 1964 will fundamentally change America's role in this conflict from observers and supporters uh, to active participants. August 7th, 1964, President Lyndon Johnson goes to Congress and asks for a resolution to use military force. We call this the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. And what this basically does, this is signed and sealed by Congress, is gives the President the ability to use any military force 
that he deems necessary to stopping the communist threat. Keep in mind, in October of 64, one month from Johnson's request, China tests its first atomic bomb. 1964. So the world is a different place. And now with the Soviets having atomic weaponry, and the Chinese, you understand why Johnson makes the decision he makes. He gets a blank check, as it turns out. Not only for treasure, but for blood. To fight the communists wherever they are. And where they are is Vietnam. This is where the world's going. And the American role is now going to change forevermore uh, in Vietnam. After this occurs, Lyndon Johnson's official policy becomes that of airstrikes. And this may sound familiar to you. Strategic airstrikes on North Vietnamese supply routes and passages into the South. We call this Operation Rolling Thunder. And it is an enormous, enormous bombing campaign all through Southeast Asia. Notice I didn't say just Vietnam, because we have ample evidence this happens outside of Vietnam as well. But this is clearly changing our role. And, by the way, to the North Vietnamese, this is a de facto declaration of war on their people by the United States. Keep in mind... Technically, after World War II, we've never had a formal declaration of war, a constitutional declaration of war. There was no declaration of war in Korea, or Vietnam, uh, or Iraq the first time, or Iraq the second time, or Afghanistan. So technically, constitutionally, none of those are wars. That being said, tell that to the people who served there. I bet it felt like a war to them. But that Gulf of Tonkin resolution, the ability to use force, again, is a game changer. And it's a game changer because, for the Vietnamese in the North, that's a declaration of war for them. And their policy of basically leaving American positions alone, I mean, there were outbursts of violence in the previous decade, but leaving American positions alone, that's done with. There are attack attacks on Americans uh, on military bases all over South Vietnam. And again, these are not the official armies of Vietnam attacking them. These are guerrilla groups, the Viet Cong. They look like peasants. They work like peasants. They are peasants. Until the time comes. When they pull out a gun or an explosive device and they attack you. By April of 1965, there is some rumblings at home in America. What is this war? Is it a war? We're running bombing runs. Johnson and many of the men flying those planes in Operation Rolling Thunder believe that the American firepower would so overwhelm the communists in Vietnam that this would be over in a matter of weeks. But it's been months. By the time you could do April of 65, remember, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was August of 64. This is still going on. And people want some clarification. Is this a war? Are we going to send troops to this area? Johnson reaches out to the North Vietnamese with what I would call a fairly generous economic package of support, if and only if peace could be found. And the North Vietnamese uh, effectively uh, say no thank you. When this happens, again, Johnson's hand is pressed. He calls for a, a troop presence of 60,000 men to bolster the South Vietnamese. So we do have troops on the ground, not for the first time, but in a very elevated fashion. And that is the year 1965, in a nutshell, at least the lead-up to the Vietnam War, 
what we know as the Vietnam War, for us. Now, things begin to really change, and the story we're going to discuss today really picks up in the fall of 1965. Because there has been battles throughout the summer of 65, but they really haven't been battles in the traditional sense. They've been battles that are far more akin to the hit-and-run tactics on their terms of the VC, the Viet Cong, than really the Americans have dealt with. And this is going to change again by fall. Because by fall, we have enough troop presence in the country that we can begin to see active military engagements on specific targets uh, to not only weaken the North Vietnamese presence in the country, in the South, but virtually eliminate it. And some of the first fighting that we're going to see with, as it turns out, as if this is any indicator, is also some of the most hellacious. And that's the topic of today's episode. This first engagement between the official army of North Vietnam, PAVN, P-A-V-N, and American forces. Now, one thing I want to clarify is that the Vietnam War is not World War II. Not in the way it's conceived, not in the way it develops, and not in the way it's fought. Let's be clear about that. World War II was very much a ground war. But Vietnam early on doesn't have that sense. It begins as a series of air raids, bombing runs. It morphs into a continual ground presence, overwhelmingly supported by artillery barrages and air assaults. But one of the most amazing changes that's happened so far is the development of new technology, particularly the way that soldiers are moved. Military thinkers at the time will refer to this as air cavalry. Cavalry, if you're not familiar, for most of human history, has been soldiers on horseback. They move very fast. They gather intelligence very fast. They will always be there uh, in support of infantry, soldiers on foot. But now we're talking about, hey, it's 1965. Technology's improved. We see innovations in helicopter technology. That is the ability to make very light helicopters uh, that can move soldiers from point A to point B very fast and very efficiently. Helicopters have existed before this, but they typically weren't big enough to be very effective. They couldn't move many troops, but if you could make them big enough, light enough, and fast enough, and still be able to move substantial amounts of people, you could move men from point A to point B in record time. So air cavalry becomes a very new innovation, sort of the way that flying artillery in the Mexican-American War, moving cannons very fast from point A to point B, becomes the new norm here. And again, it's one thing we see over and over again in world history, is that technology always improves. The ball always keeps bouncing. And people go into wars with, I guess, a retro view of what the war would look like, not taking into account how new technology will change it, vis-a-vis -vis World War I. Men lining up with infantry tactics in the 19th century would have used with machine guns, which is a killing field. Air cavalry, helicopters, particularly the UH-1 Huey, is the new name of the game for the Americans. Now, the Huey is an interesting aircraft, and they can move six people at a time. And that number is going to be really important for us. Because six men at a, six men at a time is not necessarily uh, ideal. But whenever Hueys fly in clusters, 
you can move many people all at once. So, with all that very important, might I add, very important background out of the way, now we can discuss the Battle of the Yawdrang. And again, this is going to be a battle that is as heated and ferocious as any battle in U.S. history, and as dire, by the way, as any battle in U.S. history. But this is not a battle that children in schools can tell you about. This is not a battle that people can mention and pound their chests with comfortably, when everything about it, as I'll prove to you, should lead to just that. And again, I think it has to do with the way we view the Vietnam War. But let's set the scene. You have thousands of troops now on Vietnamese soil, in and around the capital city of Saigon. Again, North Vietnam is far away. But the presence of the North Vietnamese is not. You have hidden guerrilla fighters, the VC, the Viet Cong, all over South Vietnam. And as intelligence gatherers have found, just to the north of Saigon, in the central part of the country, you have about what they think is 200 PAVN, or NVA, North Vietnamese Army, uh, regular soldiers hidden in the rainforest. So for the Americans, again, there's never been a full-scale battle in Vietnam yet. This is a likely starting point. Those 200 Vietnamese soldiers are gathered around the foot of a mountain called the Chu Pong. It's a standing peak on its own. It's right near a passageway leading north. And in the base of that mountain, again, it's trees everywhere, thick foliage everywhere. The North Vietnamese have really dug in. They're hidden. They've never fought the Americans before openly. They don't know what to expect. Likewise from the Americans. But the Americans know they have overwhelming firepower and overwhelming mobility. So right near the Chupong Massif, this mountain, there's a series of open clearings in the rainforest, which, by the way, you don't find very often. These will become known as landing zones, or LZs, for this, this entire flock of Huey helicopters that's going to take men into the rainforest to fight. The Americans had to deal with the rainforest from day one. They began using what we call a defoliant called Agent Orange that would dissolve uh, massive amounts of, of, of plant life uh, throughout the war, which, by the way, poisoned many people, even though technically, as the story goes, we never used it. You'll hear that a lot in this episode. Uh, but there is one clearing near Chupong Massive uh, where... Americans can land. And again, the Americans believe there's only about 200 North Vietnamese soldiers in those trees. So the plan is, use the UH-1 Huey helicopter, move about 400 men into the landing zone. They call it landing zone X-ray. Disembark from the choppers. And with 400 to 200 advantage, uh, and clearly uh, a big superiority in firepower, this first battle of the Vietnam War should be over pretty quickly. A lot of confidence here. Is it overconfidence? Maybe. Maybe, given the intelligence they had. By the way, just for clarification, this is going to take place in the Ya Drang Valley. Ya basically means river. Drang is the name of the waterway. So the Ya Drang Valley, the Ya Drang River Valley, a little bit redundant. That's where that comes from. The first wave of helicopters go. It's about a 13-minute ride 
on a chopper, as opposed to hours and hours, if not days, of trudging through the jungles. You see the power of these Hueys toward the landing zone. One thing that intelligence gatherers aren't prepared for was how small the landing zone actually was. Because at best, at your safest, you could only land about eight Hueys in the landing zone at one time. Do the math, six soldiers per helicopter, eight helicopters, that's 48 men. So if you were one of those first 48 men on the ground, you knew you were pretty badly outnumbered from the start. Again, you're talking about what you think is 200 North Vietnamese in the trees, and at the most, 48 of you. And your reinforcements will come uh, at 26-minute intervals, 13 minutes back and 13 minutes to, over and over again. So again, if you're one of these first wave commanders on the ground, uh, this is not a good scenario for you. To soften up the location before the first wave of inf infantrymen landed, there was a massive artillery barrage, long-distance artillery barrage on the site. They had it so strategically timed that the artillery barrage would only end about a minute before the four first soldiers touched down. I mean, that is a very small window of operations. But this is what's ahead. Now, what's the problem? Well, you do have 48 men on the ground in landing zone X-ray, this open patch of field in the middle of a jungle. And you think you're fighting 200 PAVN or NVA soldiers, soldiers of communist North Vietnam. Problem is, the intelligence was bad. It was not 200 North Vietnamese. It was about 1,600. And that, my friends, uh, is overwhelming in its severity and the level of danger. And the Americans on the ground will only know that whenever it's too late. Now, by now, hopefully you guys know enough about me and the way I view historical events, as well as this show, to know that we don't necessarily break down the battle one move at a time. A, because it's it's almost impossible to do in a podcast form, and B, because it you really have to see it on a map. Uh, so we try to talk about the important ancillary information and the setup materials and the context for you to get the most out of this. And there's a couple things about this which are just unbelievable. Uh, number one, the group of soldiers that touches down is under the command of a man named Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, Harold G. Moore. And uh, Hal Moore is a seasoned officer. Again, he doesn't know what's ahead of him, but that should be a name that goes down in American history. By the way, he is at the head of the 1st Brigade of the 7th Cavalry call it the first of the seventh and that in itself is like kind of poetic because the first of the seventh is also the exact group that was attacked and destroyed at the battle of the little bighorn custer's last stand a hundred percent loss a legendary moment in american history and american military history so if you want to again be fanciful about it if you want to be somewhat romantic or sensational about it the fact that this same group, the 1st of the 7th, is the one that's going to experience this particular battle is almost unfair, but it's reality. So what I'll try to do is make sense of this battle, and it's a three-day battle effectively, um, in the best way that I can. And the best way to describe it is utter and total chaos 
against the odds uh, for literally two days straight. So here's how I think we can break it down. Almost immediately upon landing, the first of the seventh gets out of the helicopter. They're undersupplied. They're undermanned. What they don't know is that they're over overmatched. Fighting begins. Most of the fighting occurs in the landing zone in the form of automatic weapons fire coming out of the trees and into the American position. This very quickly fills with smoke. It very quickly fills with fire and screams and explosions. And what you basically have is the North Vietnamese in an open circle surrounding this clearing attacking the American men. As more helicopters try to come to land more reinforcements, the area is what they say too hot, too dangerous to do so. So Hallamore and his 1st of the 7th are basically on their own. Throughout the entire day of November 14th, there's fighting. Wounded fall where they are. The North Vietnamese come increasingly closer and further away, effectively testing where the weak spots of the Americans are. The Americans have far better firepower, far better training, and that's really what's keeping them afloat in this battle. That night, you would like to think the battle subsides. Not even close. The original opponent that day was the 33rd Regiment of the PAVN, or the North Vietnamese. And this was not a very big group. And again, to think that they were fighting 200 men, as opposed to the actual 1,600 men, was still very feasible at this time. But that night, as the Americans dug in, waiting for help, waiting for reinforcements, the army of North Vietnam came closer. Fighting continued through the night, in sporadic parts, mostly because the North Vietnamese were testing the Americans for weaknesses. Clearly, the Americans were formidable. Clearly, they were keeping them away. But, how could they be attacked the next day more effectively? The next morning, November 15th, the fighting resumes in full vigor again, and this time, with about the same amount of Americans, in fact less because of casualties. The 33rd North Vietnamese Regiment is joined by the 66th. And what this means is far more soldiers, far more fighting. The odds stacked against the Americans more and more and more. Americans are desperate at this point. How more feels like perhaps this could be the end. And he calls in a signal which will go down in history of broken arrow. That's a code word. Broken arrow is called whenever an American position is about to be overran. It's a last-ditch effort. It's the ultimate SOS. Broken Arrow is a call for all American uh, air power that's not currently engaged to head to that position and unload whatever they have to save the American soldiers on the ground. When this signal is called, all the Americans can do, Hal Moore included, with his men, many of them killed, many of them wounded, is just hope they can get out of the way of the oncoming barrage that's about to hit. Air support comes in and cascades the landscape, the jungles, the rainforest, all around the clearing with napalm. Napalm is one of the most destructive weapons of war ever created. Another example 
of this modern warfare we have, new technologies. Napalm hits the ground and explodes, but it's like a flaming liquid substance that spreads out in all directions, sticks to your skin, and literally uh, kills you by burning you to death, uh, melting you in a way in which you can't be spared. It's a chemical warfare that's very terrible. And some of these canisters do hit landing zone x-ray. And some of these canisters do kill their own American troops. I mean, again, we like to think that battles have rules and wars follow a certain pattern, but they don't always. In fact, most times they don't. And sometimes friendly fire occurs. It's one of the hellish and terrible consequences of a war and a battle. And Americans will lose their lives. Americans with families. One of the men that was killed, we won't say his name, because again, this is a fairly recent event in history, uh, was from Idaho. And his wife just had a child that week. He was an engineer. It was, it was, it was horrifying. All the while this is happening, there's a, a press reporter named Joe Galloway who's in the landing zone for the extent of it. Uh, he would describe this as his nightmare. Uh, but horrible. You know, but that's the reality of this battle. It's non-stop hellish fighting. Day two ends. November 16th goes on. This is now day three. The fighting subsides uh, in landing zone x-ray. And as terrible as the Broken Arrow bombing runs were on Hal Moore's own men, they did effectively serve in stopping the Vietnamese uh, from attacking them on that day. Hal Moore and his men were uh, lifted out of landing zone x-ray. It's viewed as an American victory. Uh, and very famously, Hal Moore, when he gets back to his original position, goes in for a drink to a local bar, a military bar. Uh, and they tell him he can't come in because he's too dirty. Uh, like they had no idea what just happened. Fighting will continue in other parts of the Yadrang River Valley. A few miles away, a very similar episode occurs at landing zone Albany. And the losses there were also catastrophic. Now, uh, I don't want to minimize what happened at Albany, but uh, X-Ray was the primary focus of today's discussion. You can look at that. I'll post some links for that on the Facebook and the Twitter as well. So what's the takeaway? What's the important information here? Well, because this is the first battle, and because it's so horrible and terrible, what it is is a wake-up call for both sides. This is a war you wanted. The North Vietnamese wanted this. The American policymakers wanted this. And if you're going to fight this war, this is what it's going to look like. For the Americans, they've never fought a battle like this before. A guerrilla battle. A battle where you, the opposing side does not play by your rules. The North Vietnamese rushed in at night and shot the wounded of the Americans. I mean, this is a different kind of enemy. So American policymakers make what I think is the fateful decision of determining that because you're not fighting a traditional battle, the best way, the best way to determine who wins a battle like this is just by body count. Literally just by keeping score of how many people you killed. And at the end of this battle, landing zone x-ray, the Yadrang Valley, the numbers were staggering. Americans suffered 79 killed, 121 wounded at X-ray. Horrifically, 155 killed, 124 wounded at Albany. 
At landing zone Columbus, a few miles from there, three killed, 13 wounded. But on the Vietnamese side, just at landing zone X-ray, anywhere from 600 to 1,200 people killed and wounded. At Albany, anywhere from 400 to 500 people killed and wounded. So what I'm saying is, for the Americans, that's their victory. Look how many people we've killed. And throughout the Vietnam War and the terrible war that's about to come, every night, Americans on their TVs will see body counts flash by like a scoreboard. For the North Vietnamese, there also was a takeaway. And again, as years go by and as more historians deal with this, uh, we learn more and more how they viewed it and what they took from it. For them, this was their first time of ever really seeing how the Americans would fight. Their military commander would say after the battle that when he was attacking landing zone X-ray, he was intentionally holding back because he wanted to see how the Americans would react. He's only heard about the Americans. He's never really tested the Americans. And they paid a heavy price when the broken arrow call went out and those uh, air raids and those bombing runs came in. They did not expect that. So he would say his lesson from that, his takeaway from that, was that when you fight the Americans, he would tell his men, get so close to them, you can grab them by the belt. Because what that meant to him was, they would never bomb their own people. He could compete against the American army, toe-to-toe, hand-to-hand on the ground. The North Vietnamese could not compete against the American army and the air power from above. So this means that the Vietnam War will be fought in very close quarters uh, on terms that were uh, not ideal for the Americans, which is the idea of a guerrilla war. And it would go on to be what at the time would become America's longest war. Of course, the longest war now was the one in Afghanistan. But that was the blueprint that came out of the Yadrang Valley. By the way, excellent resources for this that do much better job than I could describe it, is a book called We Were Soldiers Once and Young, uh, and the movie the book was based off of We Were Soldiers, starring Mel Gibson. He plays Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore. But again, the Vietnam War, in a bigger sense, I think, was treated as a war uh, that was unpopular. The American people really begin to lose faith in the government from that conflict. Again, you had ticker tape parades, that came for the guys that came home from World War II. And you had some, but less for Korea. And you had very few here. Soldiers coming home from battle, drafted to fight this war, weren't treated well. But we can't let the politics of it, this hell no, we won't go kind of stuff, uh, change our opinion of the day. I mean, at the end of the day, these were great men doing battle. Uh, They were fighting for their lives and the men around them. And I think the war in Iraq suffers from this, and the war in Afghanistan suffers from this. You know, we don't talk about those battles the way we talk about Gettysburg or anything beyond that. But we should. And on this podcast, we will. So thank you, James, for the recommendation, the Battle of the Yodrang Valley. I thought it was a good episode and an important episode. If you have recommendations, for the next few weeks, we're doing all requests all the time. Get them in. Let me know. Get on the Facebook. Let's talk a little shop. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.